0: Hello, hello! Welcome to Pinky Pod. P-p-p-pow. How you doing out there? How you doing? I think we'll just get straight to it, shall we? I don't think I have much uh, else to say. I got my Christmas tree up, and so far the cat has not destroyed it. That's always good. Yes, that reminds me. Yes, how was your Thanksgiving? Normally, my episodes are already out by now. It's Friday morning, and I've been a little off my schedule, but I'm trying to record it now. It's still dark outside. There, I guess I did have something to say. There, there. All right. Not really that thrilling. So, uh, some of my sources today, we'll name right off the top, Wattpad.com. And, uh, SeekingGhost.blogspot.com, AlteredDimensions.net, and later on, a little something extra from Nerdist.com. So it was May, 1979, when a voice was heard. Mama, Mama, this is Serena. you like, what? Yeah, you might recall... Then in my last episode, I mentioned the so-called Burini haunting. That is a pseudonym, and I had said that I would probably try to research it and come up with a uh, bigger episode about it. And I'm here to tell you that there really isn't much more to say about it. I will give you a quick recap off the top of my head you had a family that moved into it had been a previous family estate I guess he moved his wife and she had children from I believe a previous marriage and this is a New England uh estate that they had moved into it's approximately 1979 to 1981 that these events took place and It wasn't until they were out of the house and it was over that they even had like the uh, researchers from the cyclical, paranormal, cyclical research group that's been mentioned in many forms in many episodes. And they did corroborate that at least neighbors and family members had also knew about these events because they had talked about it, but there was no... Activity by this time because what started out as first This little girl ghost who said her name was Serena it started out with her She apparently was not Scary in fact, they thought she was helpful Which I will get into that later because I'm gonna give you a different recap from someone else than the one that I had read before the next one was a little boy who I guess was dressed in white who also they didn't seem to be afraid of. He he didn't seem to do anything scary, or so I had originally read. We'll get to that. And then after trying to have an exorcism or a blessing of the house is when this evil, scary, hunchbacked, c- proclaimed himself some sort of minister came in and really started fucking shit up, okay, and was a major poltergeist or or demonic entity, whatever the hell he was. That is a quickie recap of what these people went through. They were given the pseudonym by the paranormal research group later to protect them. And that makes this very difficult to research, okay? Um I found a claim that Joe, which is the name we'll say of the father, right? Joe Barini had his father named Carlos, uh, that they had two younger siblings die in the house. This would make them Joe's uh, aunt and uncle, right? This would be Serena, who was five, and Giorgio, who was eight. There was no investigation into those deaths. I can only assume maybe they were natural causes. I don't know. So I tried digging up some more. A different account mentioned Serena being Joe's sister that he never knew about. I I really think that's got to be incorrect, though. It, it makes much more sense that a, a family estate they'd moved away from and then come back, that it would be more like Joe's aunt and uncle. But another account also has Serena as his younger sister he never knew about. And I don't know how old Joe would be, so I'm not sure why he would know about her unless she died before him. It's very confusing. That's why I'm not so sure about that. But then it decided to split the difference. It said Serena was his sister and Giorgio was his dad's brother. It, whatever, right? I'm going to go with his dad, Carlos, in case you I've already confused myself. Have, have I confused you? I'm going to go with the idea that these two children who who are supposedly died in the house would have been Carlos's siblings, a.k.a. Joe, aunt and uncle. And Joe's wife, These again, these are pseudonyms, would be Rose. So you got Joe and Rose as the main protagonists of our story. There. Is that clear as mud? <laughs> it's, and I can't research this through any genealogy, of course, because pseudonyms, I can't even go to the good old standby findagrave.com, which has actually helped me pin down some people before, oh, what was the one episode, you know, where I figured out the woman's real name uh, from a different poltergeist or demonic possession, I think it was. So I've decided that I'm going to read you this account straight from seekingghost.blogspot.com because I really can't find anything deeper. And a lot of these articles mimic each other. They're probably just getting the same information from each other, which I'm not saying that they're plagiarizing. I'm just saying that's all there is. And a lot of these things, all I could find were they're older, like 2012, 2013, the one I'm going to uh, read to you here is from December 5th, 2013, but there's some extra little tidbits in this, I thought, which is why I'm choosing to just read it to you. Shalloway, a big A little girl, once a sister, returns to warn a family of danger. A young boy's apparition is seen dressed all in white. He asks the family, where do all the lonely people go? Then a violent poltergeist or demon terrorizes this family for months. This is one of the more aggressive hauntings recorded in recent years. This haunting occurred in New England in the late 1970s and didn't end until the 1980s. And I'm going to tell you interjection 1979 to 1981. It wasn't really as long as that makes it sound. The family name Barini is a pseudonym in order to protect their privacy. The exact location of their home has also never been revealed. Joe and his wife Rose, as I already told you, that's who we go with as the pseudonyms, moved with Rose's two children from a previous marriage into Joe's family ancestral home. Joe had not been raised in this home, and at first, everything was, was going great, all was well, but then unusual things started to occur. Rose started to hear a disembodied voice of a child. Now, her first encounter, now I had read differently from the last episode where it was a uh, um, mama, mama, help me or something. But here it says the first encounter was mama, mama, this is Serena, which I read to you at the top of the episode. Joe questioned his family as to who this could be. He was apparently already aware that several people had died in the home. So he was stunned to find out that he had a sister named Serena. And that's this article. I got that. Personally, again, I think that it's more likely that it was his aunt, but moving on. So the Burini's reaction to this little girl's presence was more one of curiosity and not fear. And it turned out each time they heard Serena's voice, something bad happened to the family. So I guess they thought she was actually trying to help them and warn them, not that she made something bad happen. Such as the day after Rose heard Serena for the first time, Rose's daughter was scheduled to have her tonsils out. And apparently her heart stopped during the operation and she almost died. Another time or the next time her voice was heard, was just before Joe's grandmothers had a stroke. She was then hurt again a month later before this same grandmother died. Um, so I guess warning is not the right word. To me, it's more like, oh my God, it's a bad omen. Personally, personally, after that, especially three times, I'd be like, I don't want to hear this girl's voice because who's going to almost die or die now? It's like a bad omen <laughs> to me. Then after his grandmother died, Joe heard Serena one last time, and if you remember from the last episode, if you listened, he woke up to the sound of Serena's voice and discovered his wife, Rose, choking in her sleep. And then Rose told him after, you know, he got her awake and she was okay, that she was dreaming, had dreamed about her ex-husband strangling her. I guess in that instance, thank you, Serena. That one, she maybe helped. All was quiet in their home for a while because these events were like 1979. So until 1981, things were relatively quiet. Things were fine. And then they started to see that apparition of the small boy who was dressed in white. And apparently Joe again asked his family about it. And this one is where they say it was his father, Carlos's younger brother, Giorgio, who had died age eight. Now, the reason this states that he was dressed all in white is that he was buried in his all-white First Communion suit. Hmm. Now, Rose apparently first saw Giorgio's apparition walking in the upstairs hall in the middle of the night. She wasn't afraid, though. She said she uh, felt a very strong sense of peace. She watched the apparition for over an hour, and then he disappeared. During the encounter... Her sense of peace kind of broke a little bit when he spoke to her. And this is when he said, Where do all the lonely people go? Where do I belong? That would be really sad, wouldn't it? And actually kind of creepy, but very sad. So after this, Joe was watching one evening as Giorgio the ghost was kneeling on the carpet in the hallway as if he was intently searching for something. Joe became very curious because of this. So he pulled up the carpet and the floorboard the next day, and he found a religious medal on a broken chain. And what did I say? It was a uh, Virgin Mary. trying to remember. I mentioned this in the last episode. So some sort of Virgin Mary medallion. I wonder, well, like, you guys, I'm not Catholic. Does that have anything to do with communion? That's my first thought since they say that he was buried in a communion suit. If you're Catholic, let me know. I mean, yeah, I could Google it, but hey, yeah, I love feedback. Let me know. Giorgio then began making frequent nightly visits, but he always seemed distressed uh, about something. They didn't know what. He did often answer when the Barini's would ask him questions, though. Um, at one point, I guess, he said that Carlos, his twin brother, now it's now it's that they were twins who would be joe's father right still alive he was still alive at the time he said that carlos had taken something from the house that belonged to him but the family could never figure out what what it was so i guess giorgio didn't tell him what it was he was just like give it back another night when he showed up he announced to them My oldest brother is the only one that can help me. So that does fit in because I had read that in last episode's account. He did say that. So that fits. Joe wondered then maybe if Giorgio was confusing him, you know, confusing Joe for his father. By the way, this article gets a little weird because now they talk about who had been Giorgio's older brother. Well, if he was born a couple minutes before, but you just said they were twins. (laughs) Oopsie. This is why I interject my own interpretation of these, even though I say I'm reading it to you. It's clearly I'm paraphrasing. So, after a while... They I guess a friend had told them maybe to ignore some advice. I think I also read that uh they had spoken to a priest before anybody actually came out and the priest said to ignore them as well. So but after the last encounter, the activity, even though they were ignoring it, you know, possibly upset Giorgio because the activity became kind of dark. Uh the phone in the Brini's bedroom was flung off the bedside table. And over time, this continued to happen, at least over a dozen times, just violently thrown off the table. Joe was now getting, of course, worried, you know, started out that these were nice little children, if a little weird, you know, but they hadn't hurt anybody. So he called his parents to warn them that Giorgio might visit them. For some reason, he connected the phone. I'm not clear why. He took... This, this, the phone being thrown around as some sort of, uh, sign that Giorgio might go visit his parents. And I, I'm thinking maybe it's because Giorgio was talking about, oh, my older brother took something, my twin brother, whichever it is, and I want it back, blah, blah, blah. But when he tried to talk about this over the phone, this activity with his mom or dad on the on the end of the line every time he said Giorgio's name the phone would go dead so they went back to trying to ignore him june of 1981 it got really disturbing this article has totally skipped here unless they mention it later so i will fill in for them because they just go straight to this is when the third entity showed up now i had previously read in more than one That this is when priests came and tried to bless the house. Exercise it, if you will. And as often does seem to happen in these instances, it doesn't necessarily take, at least not the first time. It actually pisses the entity off, it sounds like to me. This is when the hunchback, scary, scary motherfuckers showed up. Was after priests had come trying to bless the house. That is what I had seen in everything else. Here, they just go on to say that the entity showed up, not mentioning that like the children and things were quiet for a little bit. So they described it as a dark male that looked hunchback, very large feet and a gruff voice. That checks out with what I read before. They actually tried to question the entity to see who it was, but he always gave very evasive answers and he would tell them he was a minister of God. But of course, after a while, they were just like, yeah, whatever. I don't believe that shit. You don't act like any minister I've ever come across. The phone continues to be flung off the hook, off the table, whatever. Poltergeist activity increases in frequency and intensity. Whenever Rose would pray with her rosary, the entity tried to distract her with obscenities and religious items in the home would be missing or broken. In various rooms, furniture was moved or rolled over. Uh, Their daughter's desk was found violently pushed down the stairs. Joe, Rose, and their daughter were all hit by items that would be thrown around and Rose was the main target of the abuse. A bedside lamp fell one time and hit her on the head. I'd mentioned to you how the freezer door was flung open and hit her on the head, and one time she was sitting at the kitchen table and something twisted her arm behind her back and then her head was jerked so far to the side, she started to choke. But things got even worse than this. Yes, they are still in the house, dear listeners. They haven't fucked the fuck off to Nopeville yet. Oh, I don't know whether to say they're brave or crazy. Okay, to be fair, sometimes you cannot just up and leave your house for financial reasons or whatnot. Me, I'd have been like, hey, mom, dad, mom, dad, we're coming to live with you right now. So one time Joe saw Rose pulled out of the bed, levitated above the bed, and then she was dropped to the floor. There were bruises all over her arms and legs after that where unseen hands had gripped her. So I imagine it might have looked like fingerprint bruises. If you've seen them, you know. Two months after the hunchback first appeared, he got even more violent. So this is the next thing is something I also mentioned in in the last episode. So one night, Joe goes to work and Rose hears a series of loud bangs on her bedroom wall. They, they say the walls literally shook and her bed, this is when her bed went about two feet off the ground. She tried to leave the room, but the door slammed shut and she couldn't get out. When she did manage to open it, the dog was growling at something that she couldn't see. This first time there's a dog mentioned in this, but whatever. She went to her children's bedrooms, but their doors shut violently and she was knocked off her feet by something she couldn't see, once again, they always say unseen hand, unseen force, yes, we know, dragged back to her bedroom. These invisible hands started to choke and scratch her. She managed to call Joe and he rushed home. Remember, I praised him, you know, because there's always movies where even when the guy has seen something, he'll be like, oh, you're fine. I'm sure it's nothing. You know, they try to blow it off. They try to be logical. And, and I was over here going, I don't give a fuck if you believe your wife or not. If you love your wife and she calls you screaming and freaking out, you go home and find out what's wrong with her. So good on ya, Joe. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. And yes, I know the movies aren't necessarily how all people would react, but it's just so common in the movies. It's so, honestly, it's unfair. I already said that. Let's move on. So he gets to their bedroom and he sees the bed off the floor and she's curled up in a ball in the corner of the room, clutching her crucifix, as you would if you were religious. I'm not even, you know, I'm not Christian, but I would, I I might be over there praying to, to something. So the next morning, supposedly it was the next morning. Again, I also read an account where I was like, but they still didn't leave. Like it made it sound like they stayed a little longer until this event, which this article says it was the next morning when they went into the kitchen, they saw a carving knife embedded in their kitchen table. And so they moved. Yeah. This states that they moved for about a month. I had I, Other ones, they never came back. I don't know. So they move out for about a month. During this time, they had the priests come and do a ceremony similar to an exorcism. Now, as I mentioned before, I think this is the second time. Because there was more than one time. I think this is the second time a priest came in. Because the first time is when maybe it pissed something off or brought something out in this quote-unquote minister of God. So, I again, you know, it's frustrating because you can't really get consistent details everywhere on, on some things that I think are very important. Other things, it's kind of consistent. But apparently they thought this worked because this says the Barinis moved back into their home and no longer saw apparitions. But I, you know, I have to go back and listen to my own episode, but didn't I say that they, didn't it say that they left and didn't come back? So whatever. Uh, A couple things of note, Joe invited the Psychical Research Foundation, which I was badly saying earlier. Um, This one, this one based in North Carolina, because there's several, to investigate the home. But this was only after the cleansings, so they couldn't, they couldn't pick up anything they as i mentioned before they did verify many of the claims though because the friends and family and neighbors had seen apparitions apparently had talked to them had had heard them talking about it so make of that what you will <laughs> make of that what you will it's just you know i can go over here to altereddimensions.net Um, this is the one that makes it sound a little more like they stayed for a while. You know, they still refused to abandon their house after Rose was found that way. And then one morning when they found the heavy carving knife. Uh, this one I have to say also says moved out for a month. They put their belongings into storage. Now, this article I'm looking at does mention two exorcism because here it's once again, they sought help from the priest. Um, They did return, and the evil was vanquished. So maybe I am misremembering my last... I'm not going to keep Googling several pages, but... um, All we really need to know is it's fucked up. That's scary. Um, Do you find find the idea of child ghosts kind of creepy? Or do you think that you would be like, Oh, that's sweet. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I kind of feel like a little boy in a white communion suit going, where do all the lonely people go? I actually I think that might creep me out. <laughs> it, it would be harder to deal with than like the hunchback asshole. You're like, okay, yeah, that guy straight up just wants to kill me, so <sighs> you know, run and hide. But with the little kid, you could be tricked. Maybe I've seen too many um ghost stories and 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 films and stuff. But I actually think I would be more concerned about this strange little boy in white. What do you think? Which one would scare you? And just like last week, my cat is staring at the door and there's something. Maybe we need to stop talking about ghosts. Did that happen when I was talking about the uh, hunchback guy? Kisu, Or was it something else? I think that was just somebody in the hall. But perfect timing. Let's just creep us all out. Could you stop staring at the door, dude? It's creeping me out. (laughs) We're going to move on. Stop staring. My cat is just staring that way. You're tripping me out. Go get it. Go get it. (laughs) So I didn't really have much for you on this uh, Barini ghost. It's kind of a lame episode so far, isn't it? But I I, uh, I thought I would get one more out here and possibly take a break. Uh, I did the first time. Season one was 20 episodes. This is episode 20 of season two. The only difference being I had a lot of bonus episodes. So there's a lot more episodes this season one. We shall see. But we're getting deep into the holiday season. And if you've been listening, you know I had some personal stuff that got me all scattered. We'll see. Because uh, I feel like also I want to really give you something good and not some half ass well, there's really nothing to find on this subject. So we're just going to go to Nerdist.com. You've all heard, or most of you, I'm sure, have heard of the movie Poltergeist. Here, here. Speaking of creepy little children, she was such an angel-looking, though looking, wasn't she? A lot of movies books things are if not completely based on at least inspired by something real poltergeist is no different so i want to tell you what happened at the herman house h e r r m a n n and again it's it's probably loosely based and not exactly as portrayed in the film but you know they got some good ideas On the evening of February 3rd, 1958, there was a man named James Herman from Seaford, Long Island, Long Island, New York. He received a telephone call at work from his wife, Lucille. She informed him that she and their teenage children, Jimmy and Lucy, had heard a series of popping sounds coming from various spots around the house. When they investigated, they found uncapped bottles of several substances completely upended in many different rooms. And it included a vial of holy water, which was spilled all over a bedroom dresser. Again, my Catholics out there, do you keep bottles of holy water in your house? I'm just curious. Maybe in 1958 you did. I know. I thought the priest did that. I don't know. What the hell do I know? I thought you only grabbed holy water if you did need to get rid of something. Somebody tell me. Where are my Catholics at? Herman... Skeptical of the whole thing, advised his family to stay calm. See? See? There's the skeptical one. (laughs) And keep the occurrences to themselves. Don't tell anybody. He believed that there were prankster teenagers that had gotten inside the home and tried to spook the family. Okay. You think they wouldn't have noticed people coming in? So, apparently it was important to him that he keep things under control. But five days later, it happened again. And the next day, it happened again. And this time, finally, Mr. Herman got to witness, in horror, as bottles moved about his bathroom, as if being dragged by, you guessed it, unseen hands. So he called the police. And of course, when the police arrived, well, I was going to say, they were like, yeah, whatever. Like, they can't help them. What are they going to do? But they did apparently see the bottles popping throughout the home. They did some sort of tests to rule out radio transmissions or electrical disturbances, disturbances, but the bottles were not warm or charged. Whatever was happening, they could not explain. On February 17, a priest came to bless this home, of course. So what did the public think of this? Well, the news began to spread much to... Herman's chagrin, and it was the subject, actually, of an article in Life magazine. People wrote the Herman's letters offering potential, potential reasonable explanations, while other people thought that it was poltergeists. Whatever the case, more activity occurred, and officers even witnessed objects moving. To make matters more unusual, the Herman House was not your typical haunted house. It was a suburban model purchased new in 1953. Sound familiar? You've seen the movie, haven't you? So the Hermans were the only people who ever lived there. So nobody died in the house or anything, right? So how could this be? There was nothing to indicate unfinished business of any previous occupants. So... On the other hand, for a lot of people, it seemed like a traditional haunting. This is what Dr. J.B. Rhine, R-H-I-N-E, director of Duke University's parapsychology laboratory, hoped to find out. He approached the Hermans after about a month of these disturbances, and he believed that the presence of the teenage Herman children might have attracted the poltergeist activity. Adolescents, as again, I've had an entire poltergeist experience, Uh, episode here and I've covered a few poltergeists it usually has something to do with the psychokinetic energy of someone young they can they don't have to be teenagers but it's usually coming from the person when it's something very specifically not just noisy ghost definition of poltergeist so this guy brings some of his colleagues because he's kind of thinking that's what it is And they studied it, and they interviewed the family, and they recorded some of the occurrences. Very poltergeisty movie, right? Shortly after their arrival, though, the activity stopped. All in all, there were about 70 documented reports of unusual activities in the house between February 3rd and March 10th. That's a... Fuck, dude, that's enough. That's a month. 70 things happen in a month. Like, let's move. The family did eventually move away, by the way, and years later, their daughter Lucille appeared in a documentary called Real Fear, The Truth Behind the Movies, which aired on the Chiller Network, if you want to try to figure that out. There was also, I guess, another home that was the subject of the same documentary, which is the infamous, notorious Amityville Horror House, which is only seven miles away from the Herman house. Oh, Hmm. Could something be going on in this land? Well, let's see. I I had read somewhere that maybe, uh, the Herman house they, they might have been buried atop Indian burial ground, but let's see what this says. How does this inspire poltergeist? Well, this was a, a Toby Hooper directed, Steven Spielberg produced film, right? Sounds sounds very familiar if you've watched the film to to what the Freeling family in the in the film goes through. Young happy family, suburban home. It was a model house, remember, nobody had lived in it. Wasn't that his job too? The dad was a developer or he sold them, right? So he got to live in one of his own models if I remember right. Been a while since I watched it. You know, they have the stuff happening, the bent utensils, objects moving, and at first it seems playful and they're not afraid of it, remember? Uh, but then it kind of starts to get scary, so they get the, the local university parapsychology department who come to investigate the house, and then they're fed up with the uh, lack of resolution, and then their daughter disappears in the movie, so they seek out a psychic to help them cleanse the house. This house is clean! Go into the light! (laughs) I love her. (laughs) She's the best part of the film. So, I mean, obviously the movie is is way sensationalized compared to the Hermans. They didn't have their daughter disappear or go into the TV or anything. Um, And I think they did not really have any physical apparitions. Um, Native American burial grounds, body-chomping portals, and skeletons popping out of the swimming pool. I guess none of that happened to the Hermans. So whatever I read before... Maybe that was incorrect. There is also, though, said to have been a curse after doing this film, people think, right? Um, Dominique Dunn and Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, passed away very young. Uh, I'd read somewhere else that she was having surgery to remove a blockage. They had misdiagnosed her with Crohn's and she had a heart attack or something on the table. Um, and people say some things happened on the set, but I, I don't know about that. Uh, they did ask, I guess, the Hermans or Lucille Herman, you know, the daughter, she says, I never saw a poltergeist. And, uh, she said that she felt her, she had her own nightmare. So (laughs) she didn't really want to see it. I don't blame her. I don't blame her. Um, so, by the way, if you have never seen the original Poltergeist, there was a remake, right? No. See the original. 1982. It was 1982. And it's actually very well acted. Everybody in it is a really good actor. I have now found uh, Alex Matusso. A-L-E-X-M-A-T-S-U-O dot com. The frightening true story that inspired poltergeist. I'm mentioning it because there's actually a photograph here of, I think, of the original Herman family. And he says they called it the Popper Poltergeist uh, that plagued the Herman family. There are actual police reports, by the way, and an investigation from uh, JB Ryan has his reports. The Ryan Research Center. Uh, the, oh, this is a good page. You should check this one out. AlexMatsuo.com. I'll put it in the show notes. Now, this doesn't say that the family called him about what happened. It says that James Herman came home to his family telling him the extraordinary tale. His wife said that after the children came home, and his wife is also Lucille, so he has a wife Lucille, a daughter Lucille, and and a son James, that they came home from school that day. They heard the popping noises from different places in the house, and they found several household substances uncapped and upside down. They were also hot to the touch. There's a detail we didn't have. It was things like shampoo and bleach, which actually could be dangerous, uh, you know, not to mention really putting stains in your carpet and mucking things up. They were twist caps, which makes that difficult. How do you, how do they just pop off? And the children were in their teens and preteens, and Lucille was 13, and James was 12. So very, very close, too. They also mentioned the uh, holy water. So I guess people do keep holy water. So this reiterates, of course, it's 1958. So when James, the father, hears this story, he tells his family to stay calm and don't tell anyone. And he tried to explain it with science. Maybe there was a chemical reaction causing the caps to pop off. I mean, that's fair. You would prefer it to be science. So I'm guessing this is why they call it the popper. Guys, actually sounds harmless and fun, doesn't it? Pop, pop, pop. It's super game. I'm so stuck on that lately. Five days later, the popping sounds happened again, but James was home. So he thought maybe Jimmy, the son, was behind the I- incidents because Jimmy was apparently a big science fan, a big science nerd. So dad watched son very closely and was baffled when the caps were still popping off the bottles, but Jimmy wasn't wasn't the one doing it. He investigated and found several of these bottles, you know, same thing, upside down, uncapped, and Jimmy had been nowhere near them. So that's when he calls the police. Interesting here is noted that the dispatched officer also heard the sounds and saw the upside down bottles. So they have a police witness, um... They mentioned the name of the person Joseph Tazi T O Z Z I, as the detective. One of the detectives who several times came to the house. Explanations like deteriorating house or family pranks were explored but were ruled out. I don't know how deterior deteriorating. How how come I can't say that house? Not quite sure what that has to do with lids coming off of objects, but okay. No obvious or easy explanation. Much to everybody's frustration, of course. James still had some his some suspicions, though, that it might be his teenage children. The thing is, he's not totally wrong. Because, again, if we go to the now much more commonly accepted definition of what causes a poltergeist, it does come from, it could be coming from the kids. The thing is, the difference here is, James, the dad, might have thought it was on purpose, but it's not on purpose. They're they're not. They don't even realize they're doing it. It's very fascinating because I always say, even if you think it's uh, ghosts or whatever, outside entities are bullshit. The fact that somebody, based on stress, emotional state, whatever, could make things like that happen unconsciously with just the power of your mind, basically energy, it's Fucking amazing, okay? It's a scientific phenomenon at that point, and it's amazing either way. So nationwide coverage now. The incidents were apparently also televised, and I am right now looking at a cutout of a newspaper article. I will include that on my Instagram, Peaky Underscore Podcast. So this becomes a media sensation. Uh, I, I bet James was freaking out, right? The the author here is also like, yeah, 1958, you don't tell people this stuff. It just must have really freaked people out. Advice coming from all over the country. They made the cover of Life magazine. They were media icons, and their story was covered publicly on multiple news outlets. I could probably do a deeper episode on this, but I feel like this is probably the the information we need to know. I don't know. I might look at it. Maybe a little extra bonus. If I find out any more information, I'll let you know but it's also a very short-lived poltergeist. Uh, the escalation, though, once it went public, I, I guess the incidents got worse. They had a cousin, uh, Marie Murtha visited. She also heard the popping, saw that the teenage kids were in another room on the other side of the house, so she knew where they were, and she didn't think they were pulling pranks. The phenomena was starting to target bottles of holy water. This started to disturb them, because why specifically the Holy Water? Mm -hmm. Detective Tozzi, who I mentioned before, connected the family to Father William McLeod, M-C-L-E-O-D, if you want to look any of this up, of the Church of St. William the Abbey. The Hermans were Catholic, as I think we could figure out, which explains the presence of Holy Water. So I guess this is what you do. James was concerned for the safety of his family, so they moved away from the house for a while. But when they came back, the activity came back. Now, if nothing was happening while they were gone, that could be the classic poltergeist because it's the teenagers. Oh, my God, he's staring at the door. You're freaking me out. Stop it. I'm sure it's just somebody in the hallway. Stop doing that. (laughs) You know, I don't normally get this easily creeped out. The sun is up. It's not like it's dark and creepy in here. But I think the fact that my cat just keeps suddenly all of a sudden, like looking up, like, what's there? I'm like, dude, stop it. You're making the hair on my scalp stand up. Quit it. (laughs) Where was I? Because lots of times if somebody's in the hall, he'll actually run to the door. So the fact that he's staying all the way over here like I ain't going over there is really bugging me. Now he's turned around so he can look that way. Stop it. (laughs) Anyway, where were we? Oh, I was saying that it could be poltergeist because it moved with the children. But I don't see yet where they had anything happen in their new place. So maybe not. When they came back, though, uh, larger and heavier items began being moved around, upturned. You know, I I don't know if it doesn't say yet, like, if it's furniture or anything, but it wasn't just bottles anymore. So, Detective Tazi uh, contacted a nearby Air Force Base when bigger uh, items began to move. Uh, to see if there had been tests conducted or any being conducted that would cause a sonic boom. Ooh, smart guy. But this was soon debunked. Robert Zider, Z-I-D-E-R, also investigated the case with dowsing rods and said that there were streams under the house that created a magnetic field. Tazi looked at geological records and found that there were no streams under the house. A month later is when J.B. Ryan Duke University was on the case. He's the parapsychologist. And yes, Duke University once had a parapsychology lab. So uh, uh, as of this writing, Ryan Research Center, which I guess he started, is still active in uh, North Carolina. So Ryan decides that the presence of two hormonal teenagers probably was causing some poltergeist activity or telekinetic events. Apparently, there may have been some conflict between the father, James, and Ryan's team. Don't know. I'm sure the tensions were kind of high. I'm thinking about the movie, you know, and how he kind of had, like, they had some tension between them there, too. So after, shortly after Ryan and his team arrived, though, is like, yeah, everything stopped. And that's definitely interesting. You know, the team shows up to a, a legitimate parapsychologist, shows up to... Investigate this and it stops March 10, 1958. I guess this is common in poltergeist cases that once the agents, and when I say agent, it's like how this, who this is occurring through again, if it's the classic teenagers and telekinetic energy, they are the agents, right? When they become aware that they are maybe the center of this activity, it often stops. So once they're like, wow, is you mean this is my fault? You know, so to speak. So the teenage daughter, Lucille, as I mentioned, did appear in the documentary Real Fear, the Truth Behind the Movies. And I believe there's a picture of her here, lovely young lady. She was interviewed by HuffPost Weird News. She never saw the movie Poltergeist. She didn't, you know, didn't want to see it. She says that the incidents stopped when her family moved away. So let's get into some theories here. Well, what does this person think? It seems to possibly have, you know, on the the outside, it, it would look like by some of the dates and the stories that it happened over the course of a year, it was actually only five weeks, 70 incidents in five weeks. We don't know if anything happened when they moved away for that short time, but it doesn't sound like it. It would make sense that the activity would follow the teens if it was coming from them. But Lucille didn't report any, apparently. I just about got an hour out of this. If you want to look up more about this, you know, just is poltergeist based on a true story? The popper poltergeist will probably return some hits. And I don't know if I want to get... There is this idea, like I said, that um, some people died because of this from the movie. So let's get into the curse, the supposed curse, biography.com. The majority of the fuel for this alleged curse stems from the deaths of four cast members who died during and soon after the filming of the series. Now this article says the series, not just one film. So I don't know. Two of the deaths were definitely unexpected and puzzling which had a lot of fans speculate on the trilogy's eerie implications. So, of course, you had sweet little Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann. She was only six years old when she did the first Poltergeist film, or when it was released. She captivated audience with her stark blonde hair, looking like a little doll, and her huge inquisitive eyes. She was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. I have Crohn's, so... Yeah, that sucks to not even get it that right. It's it's extremely difficult to diagnose in the first place, especially back then. So the following year, she she got sick again, I guess, and her symptoms were attributed to the flu. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. So I see nothing about a uh, surgery here. She was airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego. Oh, pardon me. I got ahead of myself. So she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest, airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego. She died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction. And then it was later believed she might have been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. Oh, you poor sweet girl. Dominique Dunn, who played the older sister, Dana Freeling. In 1982, she separated from her partner, John Sweeney. In November, he showed up at Dunn's house, pleading for her to take him back. She refused. Sweeney grabbed her and choked her until she was unconscious and left her to die in her Hollywood home's driveway. Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years and released after three years and several months, seven months. What? Okay. That's another story entirely. How do people keep getting away with this? Mm. Julian Beck and Will Sampson, these were two other cast members, um, but maybe not so mysterious. The Evil Preacher, if you remember that guy, the tall fit, right? He was kind of creepy. From Poltergeist 2, that's Julian Beck. In 1983, he had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which took his life soon after he finished work on that second film. The same film was met with a further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after a heart-lung transplant. But other strange things supposedly happened on set. Cast deaths were not the only things. Um, there's other legends. You know, Joe Beth Williams, who played Mom, love her. She was in the first two films. She claims that director Spielberg insisted on using actual human skeletons as props in an attempt to save money. They were cheaper than plastic skeletons at the time. This has never been verified, but it persists in the lore surrounding the curse. Maybe if I googled, if you guys google up a new, you might have found it was debunked. I'm just reading you this to finish it out the episode. Uh, and then this says, finally, in an effort to further creep out everyone involved, Samson, the real life medicine man who passed away, you know, did perform an authentic exorcism after shooting wrapped one night. Uh, it probably creeps people out and that's about all it says about it. So I'm not sure why this, I kind of remember, um, people talking about a curse after coming out, but I don't, I don't really think there's much to it. Um, It really is just comes down to these deaths. But these deaths were not necessarily, they're tragic, but they're all very explainable and they're kind of spread out. It, It would definitely be creepy if it all happened within a couple, three months or something, right? So it's very sad. I didn't know the full details about poor little... Heather work, and that's very depressing so let's stop there and wish them all to rest in peace and I will never forget that she did look like a doll didn't she have to wonder what she would be doing now that poor sweet child I hate to end on that downer So I'll just say that my cat is totally chilled out now and not staring at the door, so I got that going for me. And I'm looking at my window, staring down at my car, and it's reminded me like, oh yes, today is no longer a holiday. I'm going to have to go down and move that. So I will end this episode now with a, you know, know, happy holidays, merry Christmas if I don't put anything out. Maybe I'll do a bonus. I just feel like I'm not being on schedule and not doing my best research or best episodes you know that i usually give you so i'm probably taking a little break here but we'll see what happens if i come across something super cool i'll either do a deep dive and maybe put it out later or just read you some fun stories maybe i should find some christmas haunting stories that might be fun for a holiday bonus Find me on Twitter. Let me know at Pod Pinky. I have an official website, PinkySwearPress.com. You can tell me your stories, Reut, at dot com, and I will read them out if you want them to be shared. You can be anonymous, or you can tell me, we can tell everybody who you are. And, as always, be kind, and when your cat suddenly gets up and stares and things, maybe try not to freak out, because they're probably just being weird. Okay, bye-bye. ba ba pow